Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you will be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's Word. Good morning. Before we begin uh, in Luke 5, I want to encourage you to look into the weekly news. Um, There's an article on Nowruz or Nuroz, depends on which language you're translating from. It's a Persian holiday uh, among people in Iran, Afghanistan, uh, Turkey, Iraq. Um, Persian, Persian holiday celebrating New Day, celebrating the Persian Spring. Um, it's an incredibly relevant time for gospel workers to be sharing gospel conversations uh, with those people groups. So I would encourage you to read up on that, use that as an opportunity to pray for those people and for those workers, and then weekly, uh, daily throughout this week, there will be social media posts, um, prayer prompts to encourage us, give us ways to pray uh, for those opportunities. So I encourage you to take advantage of that. Please stand, turning to Luke 5, 1 through 11. We stand because no matter what else is said, this is the Word of God. Luke 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of these boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled their boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Father, Father, the reference in that song that we just sang was about you raising dead, dry bones to life. Father, would you do the same today? Would you do the same in me so that I can preach your word clearly and helpfully for us? That we might hear your word and believe that we might hear your word and obey it? Father, it is you who works in our, who work in our hearts, and we ask you for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I was on a mission trip, a mission trip that Pastor Jeff has mentioned from this pulpit. We were in Philadelphia, and I met a guy named Ian. 
Ian gave his testimony one day while we were there. He was a drug addict. And he shared about God, how God had radically transformed his life. And I remember distinctly thinking how he had given up everything to follow Christ. And I, a 13-year-old boy, who really couldn't remember a time when I didn't believe that the Word of God was the Word of God, always knew God was God and I ought to follow Him as far as I could remember. I had given up nothing to follow Christ. Came to faith as a young kid and I wasn't living the life of drugs and alcohol that he had lived and I didn't have to leave all that to come to Christ. I wasn't radically transformed. So, so how could he give up everything and I give up nothing? Does that make sense? Struggle with that. A year later, I memorized Acts 20, 24. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, except that I may finish my task in the ministry the Lord Jesus had given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And I thought, that's it. That's what it looks like to give everything. I would give everything, I would give, leave everything for the gospel so that others could hear about the gospel of God's grace. That's in large part what Luke 5, 1 through 11 is about. The most profound part of my study this past week was not so much in catching fish. I, I think we've read of that miracle before. Even in catching men, I think we know what evangelism is. But in the way that Jesus and Luke are fitting these texts together, they're doing something clearly here, and it's a setup from the beginning. Jesus is setting Peter up. And so in the first three verses, we're going to move for the, through the first two points really quickly. The, the first three verses is an introduction. Verses four through seven is Jesus' illustration. Yes, it's a miracle. And yes, it's amazing. But Jesus is doing it as an illustration to get Peter right where he wants him. He's making a point. And then the real message is found in 8 through 11. So the main idea, Jesus calls the first disciples who leave everything and follow him. We see that in the conclusion. So now we will build up to that. First, Jesus teaches crowds. On one occasion, the ESV reads, this is a, a term, a phrase that's used repeatedly it means, and it happened. And Luke uses it in 5.1. He uses it in 5.12. He uses it in 5.17. Flip over, he uses it in 6.1 and 6.12. He inserts these, these events in these places, and it doesn't reference chronology necessarily. It, does, it can be chronological. But it just, it's just a phrase to say, I want to tell you this. And it happened, or on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him. So this passage flows from what we discussed last week. Look at chapter 4, verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Jesus 
his, his words were noticeable. And people were recognizing that his words were the words of God. They were significant and they were garnering attention. These themes continue of power and authority into chapter 5 here. Look at verse 37. And reports about him went out into every place and the surrounding region. For this reason, we see the fruit of this in 5.1. For this reason, the crowds were pressing in on him. Or one commentator translated the phrase, swarming around him. The crowd were all over him. Here's why. It's what was referenced in 431 and 32. To hear the word of God. This is not just a unit term like we say the word of God talking about the Bible. It, it, it is that. But it, they were coming to Jesus, a man who had come to preach because they wanted to hear God's words from this man. So God was revealing his word through Jesus, the word of God, the son of God. They were pressing in on him to hear the word of God, and he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So that term, that title may sound a bit odd. Um, It's simply the Sea of Galilee. Luke is being Luke. And Luke is a Gentile writing to a Gentile audience, and so he uses the term Lake of Gennesaret because that's what the rest of the Gentile world used. It's actually in the New Testament where it's called the Sea of Galilee, and in Matthew and the other gospel writers, they refer to the Sea of Galilee. Luke only calls the Sea of Galilee the Lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, and so he, he goes to Simon. Now, now here and on through the passage, there are other people present. And Jesus, as well as Luke, are focusing in on Simon. A couple boats, fishermen are out washing their nets, and he goes to Simon, he gets in Simon's boat, and he says, Simon, push out a little from the land. And he wants to teach the people from the boat. Now, the reason uh, that he was doing this, crowds were pressing in on him, swarming around him, and so he creates some distance. And there is an area not far from Capernaum where um, scholars believe that this took place. The sea, the lake is here, and then a hillside extends up from the inlet. And uh, that's where they believe that, that Jesus was able to speak to this crowd of people that was swarming around him from the boat because it was a natural amphitheater that was formed. And so Jesus teaches crowds. What did he teach? Nobody knows. He doesn't say. That's not Luke's point. This is just an introduction to get to something else. Jesus was teaching. Crowds were swarming. He backs up. He teaches. And when he is finished, verse 4, when he finished speaking, he said to Simon. Others were there. But he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. You can see this focusing in on Peter here explicitly in these verbs because put out a little into the deep is a singular verb. He was talking to one person, Peter. Let your nets down for a catch. He was including the the crew, the crew of five to seven that would be operating the boat and the nets. He said, put out your nets for a catch. Now, Peter is a fisherman. You understand this. This was his job. This was his career, his profession. He was an expert in fishing. And some would say it doesn't take an expert to know that this is the worst time to go fishing, the worst time to put down the nets. Why? Well, these expert fishermen have been fishing all night with nets and have caught nothing. 
Jesus tells them to go out and put their nets down for a catch at the worst time because now he's come teaching, right? It's sun, sunrise, it's, it's daytime, and the, net, the, the fish can see and evade the nets. This is not the time to go fishing with a net. But Peter says, at your word, I'll do what you have said. Why? Because he's the master. Here again, Luke is being Luke. Uh, Matthew would use the word rabbi, a Jewish term for teacher. And even throughout Luke, when it's, when it's the crowds, when it's strangers, when it's other people, and they're referring to Jesus, he uses the word teacher instead of rabbi. People will say, people will call Jesus the teacher. But the disciples, except for one leper who's healed, the disciples and Simon here call him master. This is not a casual term meaning sir, it meant the one who stands over you in authority. I am the expert fisherman, but you are the master. And at your word, I'll do what, I say, what you say. So you can see, if we're building toward a confession and a commission, you can see what Jesus is doing here. You can see what Luke is doing here. Simon calls Jesus the master, and he does what he says. And then what happens? Then the hand of God moves. Now, whether they put down the nets and the fish appeared, whether they put down the nets and the fish were directed, they put down the nets and somehow all these fish got in the net such that the nets began to break. The nets, be no, that's not what it says, I'm sorry. The nets were breaking. There were too many fish in the net. This was a huge haul. For fishermen whose career was fishing, this was huge. The situation was such that they called the other boat, get over here, help us. They filled the boats with fish such that they began sinking. Water level, here's the top of the boat, and we're sinking. And we know later in the text that they made it. The catch wasn't lost. The boats made it. They came to shore. But how do you know that here? This is the climax of the story. If this is a movie or a book, you're on the edge of your seat, you're wanting to know what's next, what's going to happen, and instead, but when Simon Peter saw it, he just moves. The hand of God has moved, but the point is to demonstrate his authority and his power. It's clear through this miracle that Jesus has dominion over all creation. He fills the nets with fish such that it sinks two boats nearly. Now, these boats are 25 to 30 feet in length. They can handle over a ton of cargo. So more than 4,000 pounds of fish are sitting in these two boats. And Luke moves on. Jesus teaches the crowds. Jesus demonstrates authority. And then Jesus calls disciples. First, there's confession, because when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, his knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter confesses that Jesus is the master. He stands over him, indeed, the miracle, over all creation as one in authority. And here, Peter moves a step further. He calls him Lord. You are my Lord. 
Now, again, this is not simply a casual reference. We know in our Bibles, in our copies of the English Bible, we have capital L, Lord, and we have lowercase l, Lord. That it was a term, it could be a title of, of a man, sir. He's my Lord. Sarah called Abraham, Lord. But there's more going on here. This is not how Luke used, has used this term. Edwards, uh, one commentator noticed that Lord has been used 30 times in the gospel up to this point, and every single time it's re it refers to the Lord God, like in Mary's song in 146. She says, the wording just escaped me, my soul magnifies the Lord. You read that song, that is only talking about the Lord God. And so Peter is not simply calling Jesus sir, Peter is calling him Lord. Peter is recognizing that the hand of God has moved through Jesus. The people were coming to hear Jesus speak the words of God. Peter is acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What did he see? when he saw it. What led him to this confession? Jesus was teaching the crowds such that they were swarming around him to hear the word of God. Yes, he saw it, but that wasn't it. He wasn't impressed by the crowds. What about the fish? Of course he saw the fish. He was standing in the midst of them. You understand that they filled the boat. Enough fish to sink a boat were filling the boat, and he's standing in the midst of them. By now, he's, he's thrown himself at the knees of Jesus. He's kneeling, he's prostrate in the boat in the midst of the fish, and it's not the fish that fill the boat, and it's not the boats that are sinking or the nets that were breaking. It is Jesus Christ himself. It is the Lord God that he is looking at and crying out, Lord, depart from me. Now, some commentators would say, have said, this is an odd response. You would think fishermen, they've just received how much salary? That he should be, his words should be one of, of appreciation and, and thanksgiving. Turn to Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, you have a similar encounter. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Train of his robe filling the temple. His glory surrounding him. In Isaiah 6, 5, you have Isaiah's response. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is what's happening in Simon's heart. Simon saw it and called him Lord. He didn't see with his eyes. If he saw with his eyes, he would have seen the fish and the nets and the boat. Instead, the Lord had opened the eyes of his heart. Calvin writes that you can't really know yourself until you have first had the eyes of your heart opened and see God. And then when you have seen God, you see who you are. That's what's going on in Simon and Isaiah. See, the reality is Simon was right, humanly speaking. If he is the Lord, he should have departed. He should have left how can the holy be with the unholy? 
This is what the Pharisees did not understand. They didn't get the gospel. How can the clean one be with the unclean ones? How can this be? Lord, depart from me. I am a sinner. They were right. The Lord should have separated from them. The Lord should have left. That's why Jesus' next words are significant. Don't be afraid. He doesn't leave. He stays. And he doesn't leave you in your sin either. If you respond to him, when he opens the eyes of your heart, one commentator says, says it's one thing to be a sinner who ignores your sin. It's another, another one to be a sinner who recognizes your sin and cries out for mercy. You cry out for mercy. He does not leave you there. Look at, look, let's continue in Isaiah verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. People, day after day, week after week, year after year with the Day of Atonement. They are bringing their sacrifices to the altar, to the priest, so that he can perform a sacrifice, that the blood, Hebrews says, 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, that the, that the shedding of blood can cover their sin, but they must do it repeatedly. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats, the writer of Hebrews is clear again, the blood of bulls and goats does not atone for your sin. It's the blood of the lamb that atones for your sin. It is only the blood of Christ. The once for all sacrifice of Christ is what atones for your sin. And that is why Peter is crying out to Jesus, calling him master, and now here calling him Lord. They were all astonished. You can look at the, the previous chapter, and in Luke 5, there's repeat, this is repeatedly used, wor uh, words like astonished, amazed. They are amazed at the work of God. This word astonished in uh, Luke 5, 9 is um, a, a word that only Luke uses in Luke and Acts. And this is the first time it occurs here that they are in awe. The word is translated that, that, that awe, that wonder had gripped them. They were astonished at the catch of fish. Again, spiritualized, not simply a, a boat full of fish, but the work of God in their midst. So Peter confesses Christ. Then what is Jesus' response? In verse 10, excuse me, in, in verse, yeah, in, in second half of verse 10, Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Instead of condemnation for his sin, is grace, is mercy, is comfort. Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So in one sense, catching men is, is, a, is a fine metaphor for evangelism, one that we often don't think twice about. In Matthew 4, 18 to 22, and Mark 1, 16 to 20, commentators are arguing about whether um, this in Luke 5 is the same instance as those, because there are some differences. But, but in those texts, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. Luke does something different. And again, wide Gentile audience, perhaps. Fisher of men, what, what do people do when they catch fish? They cook them and eat them. 
the fish are caught to be killed, right? Luke does something interesting. When he says catching men, like that's what we see in English. You will be catching men. There's another word in Greek. You'll be catching men alive. Like not for death and destruction, but for life and prosperity. For life and eternal life. Life and abundant life, John, said, uh, John 10, 10. So from now on, you'll be catching men. You can turn to... Luke 24, 45 to 49. Matthew 28, 20 is not, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is not the only great commission. Well, I guess it's the only great commission. These are good commissions. Uh, there's one in each gospel, actually. And in Luke 24, 45 to 49, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Sounds very similar to Acts 1.8 and the rest of the commissions. Jesus is commissioning Peter here to be his disciple who catches men. He was a fisherman. He says, from now on, at the end of verse 10. That's another Luke phrase that he uses often, from now on. And from now on, in reference to catching men, means this is the first day that Jesus isn't simp- that, excuse me, Simon isn't simply a fisherman but he is a fisher of men, catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, so you find out that they made it. That's not the point here either. They left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. What does it mean to leave everything? Well, when you look at Luke 5 and Mark 1 and Matthew 4, When the disciples left everything, when Simon here left everything, they left their nets and their career. They left their boat and their father. So they left their livelihood and their family. They left their security. They left their financial stability. They left their routine and their day-to-day life. They left their identity. They left everything and followed Jesus. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? David Platt wrote a book on it. Follow, follow me is the essence of the Christian life. Jesus bids you come and die. Take up your cross and follow me. Following Christ is the essence of the Christian life. This thoroughgoing, one commentator writes, this thoroughgoing commitment is the essence of true discipleship and often used by Luke. Luke stresses that disciples must leave everything to follow Jesus. These two go together. They aren't just happenstance here. They left everything, and since they didn't have anything to do, so they followed Jesus. Luke says many times, if you don't leave everything, you cannot follow him. Followed is a heavily freighted expression signifying the deepest inward attachment. They left everything to follow him. And so the question for us is, am I willing to leave everything? This is the question that this whole text has been driving at. This is why Peter was set up for this moment. Will you leave everything? 
So am I willing to leave everything? So my mind goes to missions. Maybe that's where your mind goes. Maybe that's what keeps you from asking the question. Some of us are afraid to ask, will I leave everything? Because, well, Jesus might call me to go live among the unreached. Might, might call me to leave my house, home, family, and, and, and move somewhere else. He might. In fact, in fact, I'm convinced that if more of us would ask, will I leave everything? Then more of us might end up on the mission field. More of us might be proclaimers of the gospel among the unreached, those who will not hear unless people like us go and tell them. But going to the mission field is not all that leaving everything amounts to. Here's the real question. Some of us can't get to the question, will I leave everything? Because there's a prior question that must be answered first. Do you trust him? You have to answer that question first because fear might fill your mind when you ask, will I leave everything? Uncertainty might fill your mind and flood out the, the, the previous question. One, uh, one writer said, many people have a deep-seated fear that if they commit themselves to Jesus Christ, they will be the losers. It was John Stott in basic Christianity, not, not like the deep stuff, in basic Christianity. He said, many people have a deep-seated fear that if they commit themselves to Jesus Christ, they will be losers. If we turn to Luke 18, Luke 18, 28 to 30, it's a pretty significant moment especially when you tie this to Luke 5. They left everything and followed him. Luke, 28, Luke 18, 28 to 30, this follows the rich young ruler who looked to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said some things about some commandments. They had a conversation. And Jesus looked at him and said, leave everything and follow me. He was asking him, do you trust me? Do you trust your stuff, your stability and security, what you think provides safety and comfort? Or do you trust me? That guy went away with his head hanging low because he was rich. His stuff meant more to him than Jesus. And then in verse 28, Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not, do you believe this, who will not receive many times more and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus will be worth it. He will reward you more than you give up. You cannot outgive God. And so you can ask the question after you've answered, if you trust him, you can ask the question, will I give everything to follow him? I pray that we will. Let's, let's pray that in now.
Father, I pray that we would trust you. Many of us are people who are called by your name. And yet, if this is the definition of disciples, we are not following you because we are holding things back. You can have my life, but I want my job. You can have my life, but I want to decide my future. You can have my life, but I really want to be comfortable this afternoon. Oh, Father, would you break us like you broke Peter? Would you get us to the point where we cast ourselves at your feet and say, I will leave everything for you? What is true is that you are the only one that we should leave everything for. And you are the one that we must leave everything for. You are our life. Without you, we have no life. Besides that, you are the one that, that, that we cannot outgive you. We cannot leave something and then be embarrassed that we left it for you. Be ashamed because it didn't work out. You don't do that to your children. You are not a father who knows how to give, get, give decent gifts to his kids. You are a father who gives good gifts to your children. I pray that we would trust you. I pray that when we look at the question, will I give everything? Will I leave everything and follow you? Oh God, would you keep moving our hearts towards saying yes and yes and yes. Make it so, we pray. And I pray that now we, you would receive our worship as we worship you in spirit and in truth.